open. Obon is a joyous occasion. We get to invite our ancestors to visit us and to spend some time with us. <clears throat> and who are our ancestors? Our Buddhist ancestors, we just recently recited all of those dio shows, those patriarchs with exotic names, difficult to pronounce, Hindus, Chinese, Japanese. I wonder how many of us can go that far back in our family lineage, our bloodline. I didn't count the number of ancestors that we recited, but it was a lot. I can only go back so far as Grandma Fanny and Grandpa Lou and Grandma Ida and Grandpa Ben. That's it. Maybe some of you can go back to your great grandparents or your great-great-grandparents. And this is not something that in our culture is valued very much, our ancestors. Although <clears throat> I think recently there was, and maybe even now, there's a kind of fad to uh, learn about your lineage. There's all these, you can get your DNA tested and they, they'll tell you about your background, where your parents came from, and etc. <clears throat> but what do we do with that information? Um, we get some, some information, but okay, we've learned a little bit more. <clears throat> we don't do much with it. We have uh, holidays, Mother's Day. We honor our mothers. My mother happens to have passed away, uh, so this is a time when I can honor her or my father. And now I think they even have Grandmother's Day or Grandfather's Day in anything in our culture to, to sell a few <laughs> greeting cards, I guess. Um, but this is, this is the sort of American spirit of, it's not that we're honoring our lineage in the way that we've just recited all of those Buddhist ancestors. Uh, we're honoring the individual, the mother, the father, the grandfather. So it's not lineage day. It's not family day. Maybe the closest thing we have to that is Thanksgiving, but even... Even that is kind of skewed. So in our, in our society, <clears throat> we value the individual rather than the, the line, the lineage line that gives rise to that individual. We value the entrepreneur, you know, the person who is independent, 
who can make it on his or her own, um, is sort of bold and uh, doesn't rely on uh, creative, doesn't rely, rely on any of anything in the past, but just kind of goes forward. We're very kind of forward-looking in this country. And we, we look to the future. And even now you hear the politicians saying, you know, I don't want to dwell on the past, although the past is pretty significant relative to what we're going through right now. But it's always, I want to look forward. I want to, I want to go forward. So in, in our Oban celebration, we are doing something that is sort of antithetical to our cultural values. This is very much in the spirit of um, <clears throat> our, our culture is very much in the spirit of what we call in Buddhism the Pracheka Buddha. The Buddha who just kind of arises without a teacher, without a lineage, uh, just does it on his or her own, usually his uh, own, um, <clears throat> and doesn't teach, doesn't, you know, sort of just does his, quote, or her own thing. Um, and so that, that is, we have a kind of entrepreneurial Buddha in the uh, Pracheka Buddhas. Sometimes they're called a silent Buddha, or a lone Buddha, or a private Buddha, because they are sort of totally um, self-sufficient, self self-motivated, <clears throat> and they have no responsibilities. They're not bodhisattvas, they don't teach. They, have, they don't have a teacher, they just go forward on their own. So that's kind of, we could also call that individual a entrepreneurial Buddha. In our culture, when we want to get to know someone, we usually ask about their credentials, their accomplishments. I am an astronomer. I am a fundraiser. I am a teacher. I've done this. I've done that. I am. I am. So we meet someone, we say, well, what do you do? How do you spend your time? What's your profession? What do you do for a living? <clears throat> but indigenous people, and I suspect even uh, Native Americans, don't ask those kinds of questions when they want to get to know someone. They ask about their ancestors, about their family, about their kin. And in Native American culture, there really is nothing that isn't an ancestor. And so you often hear grandmother sun, or sister moon, or brother wolf. So a common phrase in Native American culture is all my relations all my relations. So when people come together, 
they're very much aware of being embedded in a lineage, in an ancestral connection. There is a way for us to preserve our cultural emphasis on the, the individual and also experiencing the individual in a larger context, in an ancestral context, in a lineage context. And one of the ways that we can do that in our practice is to create an altar. Uh, When I visited Japan, there were very few places, particularly households, which did not have an ancestral altar, a family altar. And it usually was located right in the middle of the house. So one never forgot where you came from. And not only where you came from, but who you literally are. That is everything that has contributed to your very being. I sometimes say that everything we are is borrowed. Every single thing, including all the thoughts that we have and all the emotions we have, it's all borrowed from the universe. And we are going to have to give it back. It's on loan. We, in effect, are on loan. Sometimes we we talk about being on borrowed time. Our very existence is being, we're being, we're borrowing from the universe this life. And we owe this very being, thoughts, sensations, emotions, the narratives we, we, we speak, our very words, do not arise independently. There is nothing, nothing that we don't owe to everything else. So one of the ways in which we honor that, recognize that, is if perhaps we create some sort, and I suspect that all of you have some kind of altar in your house, whether it be a tiny little table, or in Japan they have these huge, there's a, a very clear structure to Japanese home altars, family altars, and I'm happy to share that. You can go online and, and find it as well. <clears throat> so we can, we can express the intersection of our personal lives with our ancestors, with the lineage that supports us. <clears throat> you might say we're, we're building a temple right in the middle of our ordinary life so that we don't lose sight 
of of our of our need to recognize in gratitude who we are and where we come from. So typically there is some sort of statue in on the altar. And that can be, um, sometimes it's a Buddha, sometimes it's Hote, who we have in the kitchen. Um, different, there could be Kuan Yin, uh, Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva of Compassion. Uh, lots, of, lots of possibilities, lots of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas out there that you can adopt. You can adopt an ancestor uh, and, and set that ancestor in front of you, honoring that ancestor. And it could be a teacher, it could be a family member, it could be some hero that you have, a literary hero or heroine, um, some, some representation of who has helped you made, who has helped you become who you are. Or who will help you become who you would like to be? Who you aspire to be? Flowers often are part of this altar. Of course, one of the reasons I want to have a garden here at Oan is because Creating beauty is a way of honoring Buddha and honoring the practice. Uh, To create a beautiful space, to have beautiful flowers as as a way of expressing gratitude, as a way of embedding this practice in something beautiful. Because it is a beautiful practice. And of course, the fragrance of flowers is also draws all the all the devas and all the great spirits. Uh, yeah, something wonderful is going on there at Oan Zendo, and that is true for incense, which is often part of part of the altar and the and the ritual that's associated with it. Uh, so when we light incense. Placing it upright, we feel also the uprightness of the practice that we've inherited. And we feel that uprightness in our very being. And of course, the fragrance. Um, Our home fragrance is called Friend of Pine. And it reflects, actually we don't have any pines in (laughs) this woods, but we do when we have, we have the friend of pine incense. A candle often, uh, which is lit, and the illumination of Buddha's understanding of our brightness, our, our clarity. And there's usually a food offering 
um, usually something sweet, a fruit or cookies or cake, um, which is often offered prior to any eating that the family does. So when always, as we do for Oriyoki, we offer a little bit of that food to the Buddha or whoever we are honoring in our altar prior to us eating. So it's, I, I had a very profound experience early on in my practice at Jikoji where I, I was recruited to be the Tenzo on short notice. And I got very puffed up about, um, about being Tenzo. And I, I made these gourmet, <laughs> gourmet bowls. And I was very excited about having, watching people eat this. I remember especially the, the third bowl with these little plums. And I went out into the garden and got cut up some mint and had these little mint sprigs in, in the third bowl. And I thought, this is so, this is so cool. Everybody's gonna just be impressed with how how wonderful my my Oriyoki is. And then just prior to eating, the teacher told me I had to stay in the kitchen while everybody else ate. Well, I was fuming. I even, I think I even started to cry <laughs> because I wanted to be part of that Oriyoki practice. I wanted to see everybody enjoying my amazing food. And right, just a little bit before the service, the Oriyoki service, she came back to the kitchen and said, she handed me the three little bowls and said, now you can go in and serve the Buddha. And I walked into the Zendo and that's, that's who I was serving. And it completely changed my understanding of what it meant to be Tenzo, that I wasn't really cooking for people as a person who was to be praised for her cooking. I was serving the Buddha in everyone. And so serving the Buddha first is a way of acknowledging that, is a way of bringing that up. That was a really profound moment for me. So sitting in front of this altar that you have created is exactly the same as sitting zazen. In fact, I would encourage you to sit in front of your altar and sit with your ancestors. Sit with, literally sit with all beings. That's one of the, one of the reasons this zendo was built in the woods. Because this is our altar. That's an altar, yes. That's a humanly constructed altar. But this is our altar, too. This is... This is our Sangha as well. And it goes, it ripples out into a vastness. We have recited, and you might want to consider reciting some of the names of 
our ancestors prior to your zazen in front of your altar. And when you bring them alive in your chanting, you actually re... I'm going to use the word sacralize. You make them sacred again because you embed them in your practice. They're not just historical figures. They're your spiritual lineage and you bring them back alive when you pronounce their names. As a matter of fact, I did personally something kind of also very significant uh, one year when I was reciting the names of the, the male ancestors, and we'll do the female ancestors tomorrow. I realized that by reciting the names of the, of the lineage, I was re-honoring, re-sacralizing, almost reordaining all of them as I pronounced their names. And I realized that if that I could do this with anyone. And so I I thought to myself, who needs who needs to be made sacred by my pronunciation? And I decided it was my father. Who is Perhaps you could say the least sacred person I've ever known. And it was quite a significant moment when after Hohen Coben Dio Show, I said, Salax Dio Show. There he was. He appeared at the at the end of this lineage. I didn't do it with my mother, but maybe tomorrow, in my own mind, I'll do it with her. But you can actually make sacred by, by your intention, by your, by your pronouncing, by including people you want to make sacred into that lineage. In fact, you can include animals, plants, <laughs> other beings. I want to read uh, something from another guru named Krishnamurti. Some of you may have heard of him. And he says, I do not know if you have experimented with yourself. Take a rock, put it on the mantelpiece, and every day put a flower in front of it. Give it a flower. Put in front of it a flower and repeat some words like Coca-Cola, Amen. Om. It doesn't matter what word, any word you like. Listen, don't laugh it off. 
Do it and you will find out. If you do it after a month, you will see how holy that rock has become. You have identified yourself with that rock, with that piece of idea, and you have made it into something sacred, holy. But it is not. You have given it a sense of holiness out of your fear, out of constant habit of this tradition, giving yourself over, surrendering yourself to something which you consider holy. The image in the temple is no more holy than a piece of rock by the roadside. So it is very important to find out what is really sacred, what is really holy, if there is such a thing as at all. I vehemently disagree with Krishnamurti. I'm fine until the point at which he says, no, it is not holy. (laughs) Because he's suggesting that we've been tricked into thinking things are holy by tradition, by habit, that we've in effect been brainwashed, that that rock is not holy. We've just so identified with it personally that we give it great significance, but it doesn't have any. I disagree. I think it does have great significance. And I think that when you do say Coca-Cola in front of it, or Om, or, or Gosho, or reciting the lineage, you discover its holiness. In fact, you co-arise with its holiness. You and the rock become holy together. There isn't a thing in this universe that isn't holy and sacred. So it's like our practice is finding a way to help that rock become what it truly is, to manifest its holiness. And one of the ways we do that is to take the rock and put it up on the altar. Yeah. So one of the things we're going to do today, as in our second zazen after after lunch, is actually sacralize some rocks. And just to prepare you, we were going to inscribe lanterns today, but uh, we're going to wait to do that tomorrow when more folks joined us. But today we're going to 
engage in an, a part of the ritual of honoring our ancestors because we do have a bodhisattva ancestor right out there along the meditation trail and that ancestor is called Jizo and that ancestor is sitting there in a shrine and we are going to honor that that particular ancestor today. While walking in Japan, you'll likely spot small stone statues shaped like children or depictions of Buddha. While these may seem like mischievous forests, forest sprites, moss-covered and popping up from between trees, and the most unusual locations, their real identity tells a different story. Jizo, which means womb of the earth, as they are called, are made in the image of Jizo Bosatsu, guardian deity of children and travelers. They're also known as the earth bearer. So Jizo statues are made out of stone, which is said to have a spiritual power for protection and longevity that, that actually predates uh, Buddhism. Jizo Bosatsu is a kind of patient deity. And so the statues are fine with eroding under rainwater and being covered with moss. These small stone incarnations greet us along the trail, bringing protection and power when we need it. And where there is a Jizo, you may also find a small tower of stones nearby. Another purpose of the Jizo is to protect the spirits of children who have passed away. It is said that when a child dies before their parents do, they are not able to cross the river to the afterlife. And so their days are spent making towers of stones to help gain merit for their parents in their own afterlife. However, mean-spirited demons knock down these stone towers each day. So the children begin their Sisyphean task. You know, Sisyphus is the one who rolled up the stone up the mountain to have it fall down. Oh, that's, his, that's his punishment for all eternity. So these children, every time the demons knock down their little stone towers, the demons build them, the demons knock them down, and so the children build them up again. So they're often placed along the trail. Uh, sometimes we have these cairns that we, we make uh, at certain junctures along trails, and you sometimes see them as little, little towers, stone towers. So as part of our our Obon celebration, tomorrow we're going to 
place our lanterns around the Jizo Shrine and also build some of these stone towers uh, to accompany the spirits that we've invited to join us to accompany them home so that they know the way. These little stone towers uh, will be uh, accompanying them, showing them the way to return to their spiritual homes. So this afternoon, we're just going to gather stones um, and we'll uh, find they're not that plentiful on, on the land and there are some big stones, but we want little little towers. So I think some of us know where there are stones <laughs> lying around so we can, uh, we can be directed toward those places and um, gather them. And will there be more instructions when uh, the time comes? So this is a time for celebration, for happy happiness that these spirits, whoever they may be, uh, and maybe you don't know even beforehand who, who of your ancestors is going to visit you. And the ancestors are not just historical. They are beings or circumstances or objects that have contributed to your evolution, to making you who you are. So let them come. Don't, don't, don't go around kind of intentionally grabbing them out of the sky. But we'll be sitting with, with who wants to visit, who wants to visit us for a day or two.